God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Carney E. Free. Here's Pastor Adrian Boykin. Chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians are really all about the how of love. How we would love one another inside the body of Christ, and then also when we're reaching out beyond the body of Christ, how we would love. And the first words that Paul gives to open up this section, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And I'm sure we've all had that experience of being around someone who just constantly puffs themselves up well with their knowledge. But Christian love is known for building others up around us. And so we noted in that first week of this little mini-series from chapter 8 through 10 that real love is really considerate of others. And Christian love is kind of unique in that we would defer some of what we want for the benefit of others near us. And we see someone who has an alcohol problem, we would take that into consideration in our gatherings. That we might know someone's conscience is defiled by some kind of food that we would eat and we would take that into consideration. Or a TV program that someone else is defiled by, we take that into consideration. All of those kinds of things are what Paul is talking about in chapters 8 through 10. I I love the way he puts it in chapter 9. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He goes on to say from that, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might possibly win some. Wow, like, I I mean, who says these things? Who, Who actually means I would be a servant, I would give up many of my freedoms for other people, I would defer to them selflessly out of love in the hopes that I might perhaps have an opportunity to point someone else to Christ. Wow. This was a man, the Apostle Paul, who would do anything short of sin to win someone toward Jesus Christ. He's an amazing example for us. And as this section comes to a close, he basically is saying that we would glorify God by loving people right where they are. This is our opportunity each and every day that part of the ways that we honor our creator, part of the ways that we bring glory to the God who loves us and made us is by loving people right where they are, meeting people where they are and bringing them the hope that we have without judgment, without division, without any of that. And so to conclude these three chapters and just by way of review again, here's how Paul wraps up before he now is going to apply it to our practice of communion in the church. At the end of chapter 10, he says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Again, the context is he's talking about eating and drinking with respect to others. How do we eat and drink together in deferential love to each other? That's for the glory of God. He says, put no stumbling block down before Jews or Greeks, those are outside the church, or before the household of God. Instead, he says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Wow. I would so desperately like to be able to say that. I'm not sure that I can, but that's what I'm going for. 
don't know about you, I'm going for becoming, by God's grace, the kind of man who could say, I'm following Christ with everything I got, and I want his love to be so full in me that you could follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what Paul's going after here. What an example he is for us. Now again, today we're going to be in chapter 11, and we'll start here in verse 17. I'm skipping some material here, the beginning of chapter 11, and then the end of chapter 10. We'll return back to those these next couple weeks. Okay, by show of hands here, have you ever been to a wedding or a celebration, an event of some kind, where you were invited, but then you got there and you weren't quite sure if you were welcome? Anyone else? Okay, some of you. Or, or like maybe you know that you were invited and you were welcome, but it was like you missed the memo line, okay, that this is how you're supposed to dress. And you get there and everybody is wearing rancher gear and you don't have any rancher gear or everybody's dressed to the nines and you don't have any clothes to dress to the nines or you get there and everybody looks different than you. There's nobody who really looks like you around the room. Have you been to any event like that? Anybody? Okay, many of us. I had had an experience like that uh, several years ago. I went out to a wedding in Long Island, New York, and uh, had some distant family there, and uh, she was getting married, and so I got off the plane, and I went to the hors d'oeuvres hour the night before the wedding. And, uh, you know, I figure, okay, an appetizer hour, going to be a low-key event, and I got off the plane, went directly to this hors d'oeuvres hour, and I was dressed in a, a golf shirt and khakis. Can you imagine? But I got in the room, and it was quite obvious that I was not dressed the part. I missed the memo line, okay? Because everyone around the room, like the ladies were in these formal nightgowns. And um, the men were in their blazers or their full three-piece suits with ties. And I felt a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm relatively secure. (laughs) And I don't really care what other people think about me, for the most part. (laughs) Until this other person at the wedding kind of pulled me aside and, and said, is that all you brought? Like, I mean, you're in Long Island, New York. D- didn't you bring something a little bit better for this occasion than that? Uh, yeah, this is all I brought for this event. I'm going to have a suit for tomorrow for the wedding, but this is all I have right now with me. And, uh, and that friend said, well, I'll go find you something else, okay? And I- I'm already at the hors d'oeuvres hour. And... Sure enough, a few moments later, I received this pressed, beautiful, button-down shirt, which I sheepishly put on, along with my khakis. And it was like, it was a little bit odd. I could handle it, because this is 1,500 miles away, and I'm not going to necessarily see those people a lot. You move on from it. But like, there was this definite feeling. Here's some people up here, and you little measly Nebraska rodden down here. And you move on from that, because... You know, again, it's 1,500 miles. But my question is this. What if that's your weekly experience at your church? Verse 17. In the following directives, the Apostle Paul says, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, your church gatherings, do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, 
There are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's saying those who are divisive amongst you, those are the ones who don't have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, in quotes, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, likewise in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again in glory. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. What Paul's saying there is God might bring discipline. He might give judgment to us here in time and space, even here now. And to the extent that he does so, that is his mercy, such that we would not get final discipline, final condemnation or judgment at the end of our lives. So we thank God for his discipline here on this earth. So then, verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together, Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I got some more things to tell you about all this too. You've heard a lot, but I'm still not done talking with you about all of this. When I come, we're going to talk about the division that is occurring in the church, even at the Lord's Supper. This is what's going on in this church. And Paul is in utter disbelief at the divisiveness which has plagued the Corinthian church, which we've been talking about since chapter 1 in this message series. It was a divisive church, and he's in disbelief over this fact that their division is manifesting itself in the very act of communion, which is intended to be this beautiful symbol which unifies the church. Instead, it's become another tool for division within this church. Now, the Roman custom in the Roman Empire was this. Wealthy uh, dinner hosts would host a gathering. And there were people with plenty of money in the Roman Empire. Okay, and so they would have a nice home with a large dining hall. And they would invite 25 of their closest friends. And these uh, dining times, these celebrations, would be an opportunity to further reinforce for everyone the stratification that existed in the culture the division that existed in the Roman culture. And so the wealthy patrons would come and they would eat in the dining hall. 
They would enjoy prime rib and drink their wine, while the servants, there were a lot of servants, there were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire, the servants would be outside in the terrace, in the hot, scorching, dusty wind, eating their little crust of pita bread. And it would be an instrument to further divide people within the Roman Empire. Amazingly, the church in Corinth is starting to mimic that at their communion celebrations. Okay, they're having communion meals, and the standard practice in the first century when the church would come together for the Lord's Supper is they would eat a large feast together, and after having the feast, then they would enjoy the communion elements in remembrance of Christ. But instead of doing that, what the Apostle Paul is describing here is a church that has come together and they're mirroring just what's happening in the Roman Empire. And so a wealthy church family would host the event and the wealthier members would come into the dining hall and they would enjoy in their finery some great prime rib and wine while the rest were out in the scorching wind, lower class people eating their pita bread and it just mimicked what was already happening in the world. To which the Apostle Paul says, man, I got something to say about all of that. And sadly, the church, I must say, has oftentimes over the centuries, rather than being a countercultural force for uniting people, sometimes over the centuries what the church has done is simply mirror what the broader culture does and further reinforce the divisions in our culture. God forbid. Do you remember from your childhood, those who were of my age, do you remember the, the cartoon Popeye the Sailor Man? Anyone? Okay, I really love Popeye the Sailor Man. I, I, I have a heart for justice, and Popeye had a heart for justice. And so I enjoyed watching Popeye the Sailor Man, and um, he would, basically the theme would be always something around this. Um, he, he had this girlfriend, Olive Oil, and then there were other people that he would protect, and sometimes someone would be abused or mistreated, and Popeye gets to this point where he says, I just can't stand it anymore. I can't take it anymore. This is all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. And then he'd pull out a can of spinach and chug down that spinach. And then he'd pull out a can of, I will whoop your tail. And I would cheer, you know, my eight or ten-year-old self. But these Popeye moments were over justice. And I love the Popeye moments in church history where some God-exalting man or woman says, I can't take it no more. John Wesley was one of those men. In the 1800s, he was preaching in England, and the Church of England allowed the people just to be stratified. And literally, people could purchase the pews in the front of the church and have their names engraved or put on a plaque in the front pews. That's what wealthy patrons would do. And lower class patrons would sit way in the back, or sometimes they would have standing room only in the balcony. And John Wesley preached to that for a number of years until he reached that Popeye moment and said, I can't take it no more. And he came in and he removed those plaques and he divided the pews and he said, anyone can sit anywhere. And he preached to all people regardless of their social class. And beyond that, he went into the foundries 
And during the breaks at the foundries and the paper mills, he would preach to the working class people saying, Jesus came for you. And what God did through John Wesley and many others like him is he ignited this flame for the truthfulness and the beauty and the love of God that extended across England and across two continents, which became the first great awakening. Or you think in our own country, where for centuries, traveling evangelists would go from the north to the south, and they would preach in all these different cities, and sometimes in the north and almost always in the south, as they preached, they did so to racially segregated crowds. And the expectation was always white folks could sit on the floor and colored folks could sit in the back up in the nosebleeds. And that happened again and again, year after year, with so many evangelists, until a man named Billy Graham came along and he had a Popeye moment and said, I can't take it, I can't stand it anymore. And so he goes to the organizer of an event in 1954, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he said, I am not ever preaching again to a segregated audience. So he told the event organizer, you go up to the rafters, you go up to the balconies, and you take down those signs that say coloreds only seating. And you remove those poles and those ropes that are separating the races because I'm not having it anymore. And the organizer said, no, you're going to have to adjust. This is the way we do it in the South. You're going to have to adjust. To which Billy Graham said, no, you're going to have to adjust. And he went himself up to the rafters and he took down those ropes, took down those signs, took down those poles, and he preached the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of a Popeye-type moment, which is where the Apostle Paul is right here in this passage. You see, he recognizes that there is this inherent divisiveness in the human spirit, is there not? There's an inherent divisiveness in the human spirit that we naturally look out for, who are my people and who aren't my people? And how do I separate between the two? And Paul says he ain't having any of that. Verse 20 through 22 here in chapter 11 says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. (laughs) like you may think you're eating the Lord's Supper but you're not even eating the Lord's Supper what you're doing is so heretical so awful so defying to the basic image of God and the person next to you that you're not even eating the Lord's Supper for when you're eating some of you go ahead with your own private suppers as a result one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. He's talking about this monstrous violation where some people are going hungry and other people are gorging themselves and getting drunk inside the church family gathering, which is intended to be a feast for the purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's rich over here, poor over here. Country folk over here, city folk over here. Republicans over here, Democrats over here. We do it over and over again in our cultures as well today. And Paul has this Popeye moment in which he just says, we ain't having this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and so we ain't having this anymore. You see, Paul understands something that you and I must understand, that in God's economy there is no division. 
There is no one who is more special than any other person in God's economy. In God's economy, presidents or paupers are really the same. We're all begging for bread before a holy God who happens to have bread for us to eat. Okay? We're the same. We have the same sin needs. We have the same hope needs. We all need the same love. We all need to know that God is for us. We all need to know that we matter. So Paul thunders against this. In verse 28 and 33, he gives instruction. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In other words, you all come together across every division, and everyone examines themselves. Then verse 33 goes on, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. This is what I circled in my Bible. Everyone and all of us eat together. Examine yourselves as you come to the communion table. He's saying, I know the Roman feast was intended to be the celebration that separated the haves from the have-nots, with blood that was poured out to a false Roman god. But the Christian communion feast is intended to be very, very different than that. It's a unifying symbol that brings together the haves and the have-nots with no blood ever poured out to a foreign god because God's blood is poured out for us. Okay, The Christian communion feast is intended not to be for the wealthy, but it's about Christ's riches. It's not about a holy people. It's not about a holy building. It's a holy occasion for us to celebrate together. It's not about division, it's about unity. You see, in communion, each and every month as we take communion, like it's a big deal. It's not just a ritual. Here's what we say as we come to the communion table together. We say we mourn over our sins and we rejoice over God's forgiveness and we do it together. As one church body, we mourn over our sin and we rejoice over God's forgiveness together. Like when you take that little piece of bread and you drink the cup, what you're doing is you're saying, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord and I will follow him. You are saying, I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus saved me from that and he rose again from the from the grave, and he's coming back in glory one day to set this world to rights. He's going to make all things new. That's what we're saying. And then what happens is we look around the room, and we notice all different kinds of people in this room, some who are just like us and others who are different than us, and they are all saying the same thing. And this is a beautiful, unifying reality that amidst our diversity, we have this, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ that brings us all together. You know, I did a recent count in our church of the number of nations that are represented here at Carney E. Free Church between our English and our Spanish-speaking services. 22 different nations are represented in our church family. I love that. That is so awesome. We are saying across all those national boundaries that we're one in Jesus Christ. Yeah, That's what we're saying. We're celebrating today as we take the communion elements across all of our national boundaries. We are one in Jesus Christ. That I grieve my sin, I rejoice in the goodness of God together with my church family. How beautiful is that? Now, there are a couple ways that we can mess up the communion meal. And I want to share them with you from this passage. There are a couple ways you can take the communion meal in an unworthy manner. The first one is this. It's not recognizing the body of Christ. 
that if you take these little elements and you're not recognizing what they're about, you're taking them in an unworthy manner. This is not a snack. It wouldn't be a very good one. Okay? This is not a tradition. It's not an empty ritual. It's not something you do because it's what your parents do. When you take these, you are saying, I trust myself to Christ. I acknowledge him as my king. Cultural Christianity won't do it. I give myself individually to him, recognizing that he died individually for me. And to fail to do that is to take this in an unworthy manner in which the Apostle Paul says might incur judgment upon you. His words, not mine. Okay, the second way that you can take the communion elements in an unworthy manner, it's not recognizing the body of Christ around this room. If you take communion and you don't recognize the power of the body of Christ across this room, that's doing so in an unworthy manner. If you come to the communion table and there's been a factionalism in your spirit, a divisiveness in your spirit, you've gossiped about others, you've gossiped about your church, you've gossiped about other churches, that's divisive, that's an unworthy manner of taking community. We are to recognize that we are one body with many members, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, Christ is the head, and as we take the communion meal, the context of all of this over the previous chapters, and especially here in chapter 11, is the unity without any divisions here in the body of Christ. And so Paul says in verse 27 and 28, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, examine yourselves before eating. He's saying, look inside. Look deep inside. Maybe over this past month, since you last took communion, what's been going on in your heart? Where have you sinned against God through anger or pride or greed or covetousness? And and look deep at that. Or look into your heart and say, who do I need to apologize to? Who do I need to forgive? Have I been a divisive person in any way? Is there anyone that I need to reconcile with or at least try to reconcile with? This would be to examine ourselves in a worthy manner before we come to the communion table. What if we actually did this together today? I recognize that most churches don't talk about what I'm talking about right now. And frankly, that's a shame because this is fundamental to the practice of communion. It's fundamental that we come together and we recognize that Jesus gave his all for us and that we would seek his forgiveness and that we would seek reconciliation with one another where necessary and then we would rejoice together as we take. And there is a certain beauty to knowing my wife is doing the same thing that I am as we take communion. There's a beauty to knowing your kids are doing the same thing as you are as they take communion. There's a beauty to knowing that fellow members of your life group, like sometimes in life groups, we'll get sideways with each other. That's okay. We're adults. We can deal with it. We can forgive each other. Okay, that's going to happen over the course of time. And guess what? They're committed to forgiveness with you just as you're committed to forgiveness with them because you're all part of the body of Christ together whatever it might be, they're doing the same. And then together, the same, we recognize the thing that unites us is the compassionate love of Jesus for us that he forgives our sins and he cancels them all out. As far as the east is from the west, we get to celebrate today. That is how far 
He has forgiven our sins. That is how far it's the cross that he's willing to go to reconcile us to God such that we would also work to reconcile ourselves to each other. This we celebrate as we come to the communion meal today. It's called the new covenant in Christ's blood given in remembrance of him. The new covenant is the promise that God forgives your sins and he remembers them no more. That if you confess that you are a sinner, the promise is he is faithful and just to forgive you right where you are and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and bring you forever into the body of Christ, the family of God, your eternity secured through all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. And friends, that is the only condition for coming to the Lord's Supper. The only condition is your trust in Jesus Christ. There are no divisions at this table. It doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter how much money you have. There's no divisions based on how you vote. There's no divisions based on what you look like, how long you've lived here, how many friends you have or don't have. There's no divisions based on anything. What's required is trust in Christ, and then the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Adrian Boykin from Carney E. Free. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.